SureSwipe is an entrepreneurial success story for various reasons. My conversation with Paul Kent, their CEO, reveals how they went from an opportunity seen within another business to 250 million rand in turnover and a recent acquisition for an undisclosed amount. During this discussion, Paul shares their story and he highlights some really important boundaries that need to be put in place in order to enjoy success in an entrepreneurial environment. What is this podcast all about? The rate of failure in startups is so high that we need to find insight and wisdom from those who are getting it right. Each Startup of the Week podcast is a conversation with founders and those in startups that have done the right things at the right time. This has allowed them to learn certain lessons, and I try to offer these to you in a candid format that includes the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'm Gareth Armstrong, and you're listening to a Startup of the Week conversation. Yeah, I think we've got a little bit of a different story to the the usual startup and you know people go and borrow some money from their parents and family members and start from their their garage i think we're slightly different from that point of view we started as a as a product within another company at the time i'd been working at the company came up through the ranks of a account manager and into leading some teams eventually sitting on the management board there in this little product as an add-on to that business came about because there was a, a real change in the medical aid industry if you go back those years when you paid your medical insurance or your medical aid and everything was covered and then they started changing things so you kind of ran out of benefits mm. halfway through the year now with the family, I probably run out of benefits yeah. at the start of the year. <laughs> but, but, but back then, this change happened in the industry and a lot of our customers were, were doctors. And the company Healthbridge added on a product called SureSwipe because doctors started having to accept payment from their patients. Mm. But quite quickly, we kind of realized that it was not only a need in the doctor market, it was actually a need across small businesses around the country. So we, we spun off a, a product and we spun it off into a business that we named SureSwipe and I was kind of the founder of the business. But if I go back, the product wasn't developed by me, but certainly the business was. Mm. It was quite a nice way to do it because we had immediately had some support from a corporate, from another organization. Yeah, from an established organization with uh, an established market and, 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 and already. Yeah, and a customer base. Yeah, so exactly. we, so we, we kind of started the company. We had probably about 250, maybe 300 doctors using the product. Of course, the revenue was was minimal because it's transactional based, so it starts off very low. Mm. But it was something to start from, and it was it kind of give you that confidence of you've already got financial support coming into a startup. So a little bit different from from other real entrepreneurs that pack in their job and then bootstrap things. Mm. But it comes with the same, you know, some of the same passions, some of the same problems, some of the same opportunities. You said you, you spun out or spun off a business, but people don't often do that because they're scared to go to their bosses or direct reports or whomever it is and share the, their brilliant idea because they're scared it's going to be stolen. Can you describe the interaction that you had that allowed you to be confident enough to be able to propose this other business? I mean, it's complex, but the broad strokes. Yeah, it, does, it, it, it is complex. And particularly from that organization, I think, you know, Healthbridge was 
very entrepreneurial as an organization. It, it was promoted that you come with ideas, that you share ideas, and you actually get part of the benefit of, of those ideas. You know, in my early days at HealthBridge, I took an idea to the management team that was implemented and I got a huge, at those times, a huge bonus for that. So there was always this spirit around mm. share the ideas and you'll benefit from that. So it was a little bit easier. Although this was more of, if, as a management team, we went away and had strategic sessions around what is the future, what are the growth opportunities. And it wasn't me coming up with an idea, screaming and shouting, saying, let's take this to market. It was actually part of the team that came back and said, if we look at the business and the opportunities that exist, this is one of those opportunities. I think the idea came around, I put my hand up and saying, I believe in that opportunity and I want to take it to market. Mm. And I think we can spin a business off from that. So... There's lots of nuances. There's lots of difference between, you know, that single-minded entrepreneur that's just got one thing in mind versus I think what I went through, which is very much a collaboration between people that ended up because I put my hand up because of some history and kind of was a very big sales focus that was needed. I kind of got the opportunity. Well, let's then look at SureSwipe. Do you have a 30-second pitch? I'm eager to hear it. And then what I'd like us to do is then talk about the evolution of essentially that pitch because when you started the business, it's very different to often very different to what it is today. Let's go from the 30-second pitch into the first six months. I think with any business, in particular for startups, what you really want to do is solve a problem. And the environment that we're in is oligopolies, the banks at the time, highly protected. But there was a real problem for small businesses. And that problem was to access card payments, it was overpriced and underserviced. And we solved those two problems. Mm. So we really go in with a value proposition around the reliability of the product, value proposition around the the costs that you're currently paying and a value prop proposition around for a small business you need personalized service and i still you know to this day i still get calls from some of our early clients of unfortunately it's usually if there's any problems mm -hmm. but um but we still have that open door real personalized service personal touch to small businesses small retailers out there so we arrive in an elevator together and i say what do you do so i'd say I'm the CEO of CTS, but let's talk about SureSwipe because that's a brand new position. But I'm the MD of SureSwipe. We do card payments into small businesses. And I'll say, what's your business? You'll tell me that you're a retailer. I'll say, what are some of the problems that you experience with your card payments? And you'll tell me two things. One, it's expensive. And two, whenever I've got a problem, I just don't know who to speak to. And I'll say, I can fix both those problems. So the pitch really is not about saying what we do but how i can fix your problem any pitch worth listening to is actually a question let's get the other person talking and convince <laughs> that they need our product that's a very good pitch uh, let's go into the first six months of sure swipe what was that experience because i mean you've got the support around you but uh, it's still a startup it's still a startup and also me coming into a business as i historically looked after a key accounts management team to now i've got to run a business so the first six months were around three key things. I think first of all was creating its own identity. So we came out of a very successful business, quite a strong brand, a strong culture within the medical space. 
So what we first had to do is how do we create our own culture? How do we create our own brand? And how do we really create our own identity as a business? So, so that was almost the first thing I did. How did you do that? I mean, what, what were the mechanics of it? Did, I'm just thinking about someone who's listening to this who is entrepreneurial, who does want to spin off something, and now they have to put a plan into place that actually works. In your, I mean, and, and everyone's going to be different. Did you divorce yourself in a certain kind of way? Did you leave the building? What did you do to... Yes, and I think it was probably one of the hardest parts. And, and it, we were fortunate that we came from a business that had a very strong culture. In some ways, you're very fortunate because you see how that benefits an organization. On the other side is because the first you know, 10 people came from that business, you always had a, a tendency to go back to what you're comfortable with. So, so there's pros and cons to that. But certainly what it did show us was the impact a strong culture has on business. So because of that, we're very determined to create our own culture. We were still in the same building, but we moved into a different office in the same building and started creating that identity we could really pull around. And that was, you know, what is the values, the behaviors, what's the vision that we have for this organization? And we built on that. And because what we're trying to bring to the market and what the problems we're trying to solve around this real strong service ethos we looked at, well, what is the type of culture that's needed to fulfill that ethos and the type of people we started bringing in needed to be aligned to that, how we spoke it amongst each other, how we spoke at company meetings, how we spoke within management meetings. It all was built around those fundamentals, those principles that we put together right at the beginning. One of the first things we did, we became our own business from on one October, but we'd been kind of working on the decoupling prior to that. But on one October, the first thing we did is we took everyone that was part of the company, we launched its identity. So it was almost priority number one. Mm. At this point, it's worth talking about what a brand really is. The best way I've heard this described is in a couple of questions. And can close your eyes for a second and imagine this, if Nike were to open a hotel, what would that hotel look like, feel like? What do you see in your head? What do you feel? And if City Lodge were to start a shoe company, what would those shoes look like? There we can see what a brand really is. So a brand is not a label, but rather it's the feelings, it's the, it's the sense of, of the place that you get. To your point, mm. 1st of October, we create a brand, we create a feeling, we create a sense of of, of purpose and an end it's also it's a promise to your customers you know that's really what it comes down to and and it's not the promise you make it's actually how you deliver to that promise and that's what your customers see and for us and you may have experienced it i'm not sure when you came to the office did you you may have sat in the little reception area for a moment and yes. probably every person that came past you said good morning how are you doing very was polite yeah very friendly and yeah, kind friendly of wanted to right help word. yes and that's that's part of the brand it's this friendliness, this openness, this really um, willingness to, to help. I have personal experience, which is of a business that pretends to be friendly. But when you pull it, the curtain aside, what you see is lots of politics and, mm. and, and drama. And how, what, so how so that, that friendliness that? that you've experienced, is, it was never an instruction. Okay. I think part of the people that we hire are these you know, open people that want to help. 
but it's not an instruction that everyone must greet the person that's sitting in front. Seven values on the wall. Uh, One of them is friendliness. Yeah, yeah it's, it's not at all. It's just that's how we behave. So the values you put on a wall versus how you behave in a day-to-day situation need to be aligned. And and it's difficult. I think it has to, it, it, it must evolve. And I think that's part of it. You know, often uh, our culture's changed. That's good. Mm. As long as we, you're evolving and you're taking the good things along and you're getting rid of the bad, because there's good and bad in all cultures, mm. you know, organizational cultures. We speak about culture a lot in our induction. We speak about culture a lot in, from an organization point of view. We've used our vision to make decisions. Mm. And it's, I, I mean, I've told this story a couple of times, but it's still one of my favorite stories. Uh, probably five years ago, we got a, a request for proposal from one of the tier one retailers and I was running around high-fiving. It's like, that's it. We've made it. We we're on the radar of large retail across South Africa and uh, Richard Flack, who's the, the COO at the time. He's now, as I move on to CTS, he's taken up my role as the MD at SureSwipe. He turned to me and said, Paul, but our vision says, you know, we're about independent retailers. That's how we built our business. We haven't built a business to support and and service tier one retailers. So it's not just something on the wall. It's, it's something that you use in, mm. in making critical decisions. And he was exactly right. How did you take that? What, what was your response to that? I think it was reassuring against that's why we put that together. Mm. That's why we we actually didn't just talk about it. We wrote it down on a on a document. It's why we promote it every month mm. when we have uh, induct new employees coming to the business. So little disappointing, but so reassuring around the things we say are being used in, in decision-making. So it's, it's why it's one of my favorite stories now. It's a good story. Um, the second thing we said, well, we know what the problem is that we're solving, but what, how do we take that to market? How do we communicate with the customer base or the target market? And what's our real core competence? And it was around distribution. Mm. So we really built up a very strong distribution team that focused on personal selling. And I think it's still one of our biggest strengths is a real personalized selling, very wide based distribution of salespeople on the ground. Because in, at that time, if people wanted to get a card machine, they only thought you could get it from a bank. So we had to go out and educate and tell people about that. And then the third part was to really look at what are the things that we want to do ourselves and what are the the functions that can be outsourced. Mm. And we really looked at if it's around personalized selling, if it's around service, a lot of the things that we'd initially outsourced, call center, on-site support, we started bringing those in-house. So the idea was if it touched a customer, it must be sure swipe. Everything else in the back end we could outsource mm. based on economics. And, and that was kind of the first six months putting that together. And, and I think what a lot of, what a lot of businesses try to do now is one, they try and bring in too much capital up front. So you give away a lot of your business and it's like, what are you going to use the capital for? And because they get access and particularly fintech businesses, they've got pretty good access to capital. And because of that, they try and do everything. Mm. And when you try and do everything, you're not really focusing on the thing that is going to make you successful. And I think that's what we tried to do in those early years. The focus was intense around 
only payment product. We've, we've added layers onto that over time because we've got this big customer base, but it was around only payment products, only payment products in standalone base, only to the SME, what we call the independent retail market and a real strong focus on winning there first before you start looking at other things. It takes a certain maturity though. You seem to be able to do that. Maturity, naivety, you know, <laughs> the, the interplay. <laughs> no, okay. No, really, I, I think, um, I think the one is we kind of just were on quite a high growth curve because of solving that one problem. And I think because of that, we just kind of continued on that journey and, and try to do it in a very simple way. And I, I really, from a business point of view, I look at business and say, how do we make it simple? If I can't understand it, an average guy can't understand it. I am an average guy. And we really try to do that. And, and the, the moment you start kind of complicating things, it's difficult to explain. It's difficult to go to shareholders, explain the business. And, and it did help. I think we, I got some good, good guidance from our shareholders at the time, uh, good guidance from uh, the board structure that we sent, set up. And uh, I say there's a little bit of luck in things as well. I think we made the right decisions based on a little bit of luck, a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of naivety, all of those things brought in, it worked in yeah. the end. Let's go back and let's talk a little bit about uh, a couple of mistakes that you made early on. What comes to mind immediately? Yeah, so so I think we, we were probably getting really good traction in, in growth. If I look back, the biggest mistake is we didn't expand quick enough. Okay. The opportunity was there. It was much less competitive than it is now. And in hindsight, I thought, man, if we knew in year three to four what we know today, we would have doubled down on everything. Mm -hmm. and, and it could have been a much bigger organization now. That's probably one of the big learnings. You know, at, at what point do you start your scale? Was it the risk too high? What, what do you think didn't lead you to, as you say, double down? Yeah, I think part of it was I was still new in, in this type of role. Part of it is the business is going to outgrow me. As a, mm. as a leader in yeah. the business. And, and there's, so lots of factors leading into it. The other was around, well, we're going to have to go and raise some capital to do this. And we'd had very little capital requirements to grow and expand. And we used our own funds to grow the business. And that's a great feeling. It's a great place it to is. be. Yeah. And then this would have meant we're going to go and get capital from our shareholders. So it was just, you know, all these factors that came into play made it very convenient not to take the risk. Mm. It's interesting uh, how it isn't just business. There's often sometimes what I'm going to refer to as irrational personal things that come into the mix. Life and business is messy. And I think it's an important thing to understand is that we're human beings. Yeah, I think it's right. And the one part of it is just because we didn't do that, everyone was still high-fiving us because we were regarded as so successful. Mm. So at the time, you kind of think about it, but you say, well, you know, we, we double in our numbers every year. So, but we could have tripled or quadrupled them in those early years. And that's what we missed out on. So at the time, I don't think it was a conscious decision. It was probably all of these factors played into the subconscious, but it, we didn't make a conscious decision not to invest in growth. We were thinking we were investing enough in growth, but hindsight's a wonderful science. And looking back, we should have invested more. So taking that experience, how do you look at opportunities differently now? So the one is preparing a business to scale. And even if in hindsight the opportunity was there, that preparation to scale would have taken 
something that would have taken a lot of effort, a lot of knowledge to do that. And so now when we look at what's the opportunity from a business, it's not just around what is the opportunity available, it's around are you ready to scale? And if you're not, what are we doing to make sure you get ready as quickly as possible. So there's always two parts of it because mm. the one thing you don't want to do is all of a sudden get all these customers on board and the client experience, the customer experience, the customer demands you can't meet because your operating model is not there to support those customers and you end up just losing as many as you bring on. Then that 1st of October brand and everything that you've established goes out the window. I think Buffett speaks about a lifetime to build a brand, five minutes to destroy it. And But that, that really a, is… That's exactly right. It yeah. is exactly right. And I must tell you, there are some South African businesses that I absolutely hate. And I have to deal with them because it's kind of you're forced into the corner because there's no one else as a service mm -hmm. provider. But their customer service sucks. You, you're big on customer service. We are. And, and you know, often we, we don't get it right. And I think, but I think acknowledging that we don't always get it right is, is key to improving that. We're in a fortunate but unfortunate position. So we still have a lot of reliance on banks. We still have a lot of reliance on connectivity infrastructure. We still have a lot of reliance on uh, international associations. So the areas, you know, there's two levels to what we offer. One is the product and how that's experienced. And the other one is the service around how we deal with things, the experience that you have when you, when you need us. And, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of failure points mm. in card payments as, as an industry. And, and I think we're quite big on saying, how do we reduce those failure points and make this product more reliable? Because until that happens, cash is still going to be an option. We're still going to get to the point of sale and kind of, oh, you know, one of the connectivity partners is down or the, the bank is down or, and it's just, uh, that's our customer. So mm. we get the blame irrespective and we yeah. take that on and say, that's exactly right. And that's why when we think about product, it's just really about how do we put, build that product to be the most reliable in the, in the industry. How do you do that? How do you take on the responsibility of third party technical fault, but still maintain the relationship with your clients. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a tricky business. It is. So, so you end up putting in place multiple third parties, redundancy options. If service provider A is unavailable, it goes via service provider B. Of course, that comes into a massive amount of cost. Mm -hmm. And in a, in a very competitive market, we, we have to balance this up against reliability and cost. I, I think what we have that's quite unique is the biggest competitor to us is the bank. And ultimately they have one system, which is their system. We have a, a, a view of, we still need the bank as a partner, but we could have two banks as our partners. And that's our forward view saying, well, if bank A is down, we can go to bank B. And that's probably the, the, the highest level of redundancy that's needed that because we're an independent we have that ability to have two banks. Mm -hmm. And so it puts us in a very unique position going forward. My wife and I are going to China. And to a large extent, that's a cashless society, QR codes everywhere. That, for example, is an important question when you consider banks, services like yours, the future of, of industries and businesses and in and. Yeah, absolutely. I think the Nordic countries in particular have, have probably the most progressed, mm -hmm. although China from a, I think from a variety of 
of cashless options have probably got the biggest variety. But as a community, I think um, the Nordic countries have probably the most progressed when it comes to the least amount of cash. Mm -hmm. But recently, they almost reversed things. They're actually mandating that businesses need to hold cash because there's just so many risks associated with not having cash available and technology systems crash. Attacks on technology, you know, security is becoming a big problem around non-cash transactions. You know, even mature markets like the UK, the electronic only overtook cash recently. And that was with the introduction of kind of contactless payments. So it's a long way to go. Will we ever get there? I think cash is going to be around for certainly in my, in my lifetime. Interesting. Um, just because there's a risk associated with not having any. Mm. But I think there's a big change happening from a consumer interaction. So typically you'd go, whatever store you go into, you still just swipe your card or you tap your card. It's the same. But I think um, different sectors are going to start including the settlement or the payment as part of their cons customer experience. You know, we see it in Uber. You can just walk out the door. Yep. That's going to happen in certain sectors. So it's really becoming a lot more bespoke based on the type of business you have and the experience you want as a retailer, the experience you want to give your customer. You look at these other retail environments. I think Amazon has done it. There's a number of places in the East, in Asia that have done it where it's artificial intelligence cameras, pick it up, walk out the door. Everything's done behind the scenes. There's, that, a, there's does, amazing does that, stuff happening in China where it's it's really around that AI, um, but also bringing in consumer behavior. So they, they'll start looking at based on your your mood when you walk through the store, whether you want a flat white or a Americano. So you know whether how quickly you walk in, what you're wearing. When you look at your business, does it make you nervous? I think creates opportunity as we put ourselves at the point of interaction in the store, removing cash actually increases the transactions that are going to come through our business. So as long as we are looking at how do we start really adding value at the front end of a retailer, I think it, it's really, it's an exponential growth from a business point of view because more and more transactions are going to be coming through SureSwipe's front end. As an entrepreneur, how do you refuel? Are you switched on all the time? Does your wife go crazy? Or, or? I mean, she does. And, and, and we, we do also, because we're in financial services, in fintech, in payments, our customers are retailers. So our customers are always on. Because of that, there's a very little off switch. But certainly from a personal point of view, I, I get up early most mornings. I drive out to Kailami and I go horse riding. Okay. So I'm a, I'm a, a big show jumper, right? Probably four times a week. Oh, wow. Got a couple of horses, compete at question competitions in show jumping. So that's my downtime, which is not sitting down, but it's really around just really well, clearing is, the mind yeah, and, exactly. and, and it's a beautiful experience on horseback. The founder of Angel List, Navel, he described, um, people don't want peace of mind. They want peace from mind. And I think that's what you're talking about, which is just the ability to get away from the chatter. What he describes as the monkey brain continuously banging on the it's on exactly the and that's that concentration that focus on one thing uh, instead of just all of these either worries opportunities thoughts coming into your head mm. so it really does help with that do you have someone that you look up to who inspires you i've got a real affinity for small businesses for for retailers in particular it's and it probably comes from i um, grew up in england i moved here when i was around 10 years old 
and my grandfather had a, a small fruit and florist shop in a small village that we came from that recently I learned there's about 8,000 people there. So mm. it's a really um, mining community background. And, and I just, I remember those days helping him in his shop. So, so I've got real fond memories of, of my grandfather and I think growing up, he, he really played a big role in my life. Of course, parents also, but real fond memories of my grandfather. When it comes to business, the Trade Bridge Board had a very, um, quite an experienced board. So really relied on a couple of people there in, in terms of, you know, ideas, men, mentors. Eli Atti, the CEO of HealthBridge, of TradeBridge as, as it became known, played a cl- close role into advice as, as the business was, was growing. Um, and then my father-in-law is, uh, he's got his own business. So he's quite an inspiration around, a drive to ownership of a business. So, so there's a few people. Mm. I don't think there's any one person, but over time and different times, either they provided guidance or, or inspiration. What would you say your greatest strength is? So I think I've been able to bring people in that complements my mindset, my skills. Uh, and getting back to ego, I think I've had the ego, uh, the ego hasn't been so far extended that I've been able to actually bring much smarter people in than mm. I am. Mm. So I, I guess if I look back, I think one of the strengths is really being able to build a team around me and that really complements my skills, my knowledge, my attitude. Mm. What are you most excited about if you look into the next 18 mm. to 36 months? What are you most excited about for SureSwipe? So from a SureSwipe point of view, I think they're so well positioned to actually ex- increase their growth rate. I think from an industry point of view, it's although it's highly competitive, there's lots of players in the market, lots of players have come into the market as it's opened up a little bit. It's highly competitive, but a lot of survivalists. So certainly one of the things that we saw within SureSwipe uh, as a strategy that we had was around a market consolidation. And the new structure that we've got in place still says market consolidation is going to happen. It's just not going to be led by SureSwipe. It's going to be led by the new structure we've got, uh, CTS. So I think that's still there from a high growth rate point of view. But really what that does is it allows SureSwipe to refocus on the things it does amazingly well. And that's build up its its personalized selling distribution network. It's making sure that its product is the most reliable in the market. And it's making sure that they can consistently deliver uh, the right personal service, personalized service. So I really think the the new organizational structure has almost allowed SureSwipe to refocus on the things it does amazingly well and not trying to do too much. That's mm. going to be done a lo- one level up. Boundaries, brand, and culture. These are the ingredients I'm taking away from Paul and this discussion today. Paul and SureSwipe's story shows me that there are in fact opportunities available to entrepreneurial types. We don't have to leave our businesses in order to start another business. It does, however, take smarts, guts, and a whole lot of hard work to make it happen. If you wish to hear more conversations like these, visit garethtarmstrong.com and join our community there. I'm Gareth Armstrong, and you're listening to a Startup of the Week conversation.